Episode 294 of the Pilot the Pilot Podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by Learn the Finer Points. Use the link below to save 10% off their ground school app. Aviation, there's a new offer from SiriusXM. Make sure you upgrade your next flight without upgrading your plane by getting the Garmin GDL52 portable receiver. The GDL52 has ADSB traffic and weather plus SiriusXM weather and entertainment. It has Bluetooth and works with Garmin Pilot apps. For a limited time, you can get a $300 rebate on the GDL52 Plus. It comes with a free three-month trial of SiriusXM's weather and entertainment. I love flying with SiriusXM, and it's honestly one of my favorite features about having the G5000. So the GDL52 will offer you a very similar outlook on the weather and also get to listen to some awesome radio stations on SiriusXM. So check out the GDL52 at aopa.org slash SiriusXM. I'm uh, J. Paul Reisner, and uh, I'm in the United States Air Force. Aviation Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode is with JP. JP is in the military, and he has been in the military for quite some time. But what's cool about JP's story, and what's different from anything else I've done, is he is not actually a pilot in the military. Now, technically, he is still a pilot. He has all his certifications. He uh, wanted to go into the military being a pilot, but once selection day came, he found out that the military had a little bit of a different thing. Find out from his adversity how he actually found out that's exactly what he wanted to do, and it's been a huge blessing for him. So it was really cool to talk with JP. Make sure you follow him. I'll tag him down below in the comments. Uh, he has some great pictures and a great outlook on life, and uh, it was a lot of fun to talk with him. But Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, you can support the podcast by checking out the Bold Aviator Pilot to Pilot hat. You can go to boldaviator.com, search Pilot to Pilot, or run our collaborators, and it'll be the pilot there. And it will be the hat right there. It's the greatest hat you will ever buy. I stand by it 100%. If you don't like it, I don't know if they would take the return back. But go check the return policy. <laughs> but Haven Nation, thank you so much. I hope you're having a great day. And without any further ado, here's JP. Jay Paul, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, we said this before, but uh, thanks for being flexible. Uh, I've dropped the ball <laughs> trying to get you on before. So uh, it's good to finally have you on. And we, we shuffled you a little bit earlier. Uh, but uh, I'm excited to share your story, man. It's me a lot of fun. Yeah, sounds good. I'm excited. Cool. Well, let's get started, man. Why aviation? Uh, was it kind of a long time dream of yours, a long time goal, or was it something that you were just like, you know, plane's kind of cool. I guess I could try that. So I've actually, I've never wanted to ever do anything different. I don't remember ever wanting to do anything other than fly. Um, my parents will tell you it's because they took me to an air show and my mom was pregnant with me. Uh, and that's where it started. But uh, I've been surrounded by aviation growing up and had a bunch of influences and I have never wanted to do anything different. So it's always been the plan. Was the plan always military? Like the whole time, like, like I want to be a military pilot. It was. Yeah. Um, there were some like speed bumps on the way to that, but that was ultimately, yeah, where I wanted to end up. Yeah. What was the inspiration for becoming a military pilot family history being in the military or just again, like kind of watch Top Gun one day and we're like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so uh, my grandpa flew in World War II, um, and then he had planes after that. Um, so he was a big influence. And then one of my dad's friends 
when I was little was still in like the Navy reserve and he would have um, a Hornet at, in Indianapolis. And whenever he did, my dad would pull me out of school and we would go down to the airport and I'd jump up in the cockpit, watch him take off um, and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, air shows, we went up to a ton of those when I was little. Yeah. So that's a pretty cool introduction uh, to aviation sitting Hornet, right? Yeah, it was cool. It was, and it was, it was nuts. It was just like sitting at an FBO. Like you'd walk out and there was like little, you know, like single engine planes and there's just a Hornet sitting there dripping oil and fuel. I'm sure the FBO loved that. Sounds about right. You know, you never know what you're going to find at an FBO. And a lot of times it's like the most random FBO have the coolest stuff too. You're like, wow, I had no idea you'd have that. There's a, there's an airport somewhere in Texas. I think it's Longview. I think it's Longview, Texas. They have just like a little museum of like a boneyard essentially of old military aircraft. And it's really cool. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. Recommend go check it out yeah cool um so yeah so you want to be a military pilot kind of had that whole idea uh grandpa like looked at that be like that'd be cool to do that what was next how did you make that happen um so again like that being the only plan um i knew i wanted to go to purdue because they had a flight school um i didn't even consider the academy because i wanted to go to a real college uh, and do that um and then i got to purdue and found out I uh, kind of looked into the ROTC, but they did their like wake up and work out PT every, I think it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5 a.m. And again, didn't want to do that. So uh, I went the third route of officer training school, which is after you graduate, but kind of put that on the back burner and just like that was what I was going to work towards. But just at Purdue, um, just worked through the flight program there and then went to OTS after I graduated from Purdue. Was there any hesitation at all in those four years? You're like, you know, civilian life's kind of good. I can kind of do whatever I want to do. Uh, or were you still pretty focused the whole time? I knew, like, I still wanted to go the military route, but being exposed to that flight program and just seeing how the civilian world kind of went, I, I don't think I would have been disappointed if something hadn't worked out or I hadn't gotten in the military. Like, I still just wanted to fly. Like, that was the, the goal. But um, I didn't necessarily, like, ever waver in the military side of it, no. When you were making your decision to go to Purdue, was it solely because one, I'm guessing you've mentioned Indianapolis before, Indiana based, uh, Purdue's kind of close, the massive aviation school. Uh, was that pretty much the only reason? It was. Yeah. Uh, I liked the, it was like a little over an hour from where I grew up. So it was far enough away that my parents couldn't just like surprise me, but also like close enough. I could go home and see them, um, while I was there. And then, yeah, the flight school just really, um, appealed to me and like going to a big school and I don't think I didn't even apply anywhere else that's I was just like all in that's where I'm gonna go I wanted to be a boilermaker yeah yeah <laughs> I went to Ohio State what years did you go to Purdue I was there from 06 to December of 2010 okay uh we lost to you I played football at Ohio State and I think it was 20 2009 uh, we lost you guys at Purdue, and it ruined our chances to go to a national championship. So was that was that the was that a night game? Uh, I don't think so. That was uh, like 2013. We lose you guys like every three years at Purdue. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I I as a student had tickets to like season tickets. I think I went to like two games. Like it, well, with like the uh, I did the whole fraternity thing, and like Purdue is known for the Breakfast Club. So like a normal kickoff game the bars there will open at like 6am. So everybody goes to that before the game. 
And I was typically not in a state where I needed to be like, <laughs> in public at a football game for like three hours. Understand. Say no more. I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. College kid, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so Purdue Aviation, what was that like for you? What was that experience like? I really liked the majority of it. Um, I liked the like the structure. I liked knowing like this, like having a pretty rigid syllabus. Like I knew I'm flying tomorrow and this is what the flight is going to be. And this is exactly what we're going to go do. And I could just focus, you know, studying on that. I personally liked the, like the rigidity of that syllabus and the structure of it. That for me, at least helped me learn um, really well. And I just like the frequency. I mean, I flew basically three times a week, every week for four years, which was awesome. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, one thing I didn't like about aviation in the Midwest was flying in the wintertime. It was yeah. uh, unpredictable and not much flying, at least at Ohio State Aviation. It was either too cold, uh, the clouds are too low, freezing levels. Uh, winter was kind of just like an absolute disaster. And it was a real pain in the butt when you're trying to get your uh, your hours and, and your ratings really fast. You know, it's like winter comes around, you're doing instruments, it's like, cool. Um, clouds are at 2000 feet let's go five like well actually freezing levels at like on the ground so can't do it it's like come on <laughs> yeah yeah i remember like the winter it was basically a coin flip like if the weather was going to either yeah. let you do it or not so or starting the airplanes you know go out get the preheater they only have like one or two for I mean, they said Ohio State, they only have like three forever we have 10 planes only have three preheaters it's like oh come on my hour slot or hour and a half slot is now 30 minutes <laughs> Yep. That's where I quickly learned the coldest place. If you want to find it is always an airport. Cause there's always wind. And in the Midwest, it's like, it feels it's got to be 10 or 20 degrees colder, which is an exaggeration, but no matter what, like stepping out for yeah, a winter <laughs> flight at Purdue is like, I'm going to freeze. I don't think it's an exaggeration. I think you're spot on. It is way too cold. Uh, airports, like you said, it's always windy at an airport. It's always cold. I, my hands have never been so cold in their life. Um, it's just like, I thought I was going to lose a couple of fingers. I wrote too long. Did you get all your ratings in while you're, when you're talking about Purdue? I did, yeah. Um, to include the cool thing about their program is uh, for one of the summers, your summer going into your junior year, you can stay there and get a CFI. And then the juniors and seniors teach basically the first three semesters of um, like the student syllabus. So, yeah, I got, yeah, all the way up, um, obviously private commercial. Um, instrument and then multi-engine instrument as well and then cfi while i was there do you recommend that to people that want to go to the military out to get everything civilian or do you think obviously you got to pay for it that way but when you're do you recommend at least having your private or having something before you go into the military ranks do you think that helps you out at all or does it really not matter i personally think it does um like if you want to get in the military and be a pilot like part of the like your application package, especially if you're going to go to officer training school is it's this, it's called a pick sum. It's like a pilot composite score or something. And part of that is um, either ratings or hours up to a point, like you can max out that score or that portion of it. So that's one thing. And then it was so much easier in training. Like when we got to doing instruments for like on the military side it was a joke. I was like, yeah, I know how to, this is, <laughs> yes, I know how to do all of this. Like, yeah, this is very easy. Um, so I think if you can, it just, it's one less thing you're stressed about and one less thing from the fire hose that you're drinking from that you have to worry about. 
And then what was your training kind of like? Did they make you essentially go all the way through like private instrument commercial again, like they're teaching wise, or did you get kind of accredited into the private and you just got to learn how to fly, make sure you can fly instrument and, and all that fun stuff. So for me, um, I actually, uh, when I got picked up for OTS, they tell you what you're going to do. Like, Hey, if you join, like, this is going to be your job. And I was flying for a regional at the time, get the phone call and they tell me, Hey, you're going to be, it's called a combat systems officer. So not a pilot. Uh, and I remember my response to that is, well, I don't even know what that job is. Like, I didn't remember writing that down on my application or anything. So like now what I do, like I'm in the backseat of the strike Eagle. That's what I do now. I'm a weapon systems officer, but my civilian stuff, all that really helped me do was it got me out of, I didn't have to go to what's called initial flight screening, which is in Pueblo, Colorado, where you go fly a DA 20 because I had a private, so I didn't have to do that. Um, but for us, for like that training, like the ratings and everything don't really matter. Cause like I flew in the backseat of the trainer aircraft. So I just like navigated and learned how to do that. But like for the instruments, like I said, it was like a leg up because like I could read an approach plate. I knew how they went. Like I could talk on the radio, like all that stuff transferred, but the ratings and stuff like that don't really translate i guess all right so you actually went to you you were at a regional you you applied you got the regional you were making money flying i mean big airplanes essentially when it comes from flying 172 at purdue and you still wanted to go to the military it wasn't even like a reserve thing you just wanted to go full in and uh, do the whole thing yeah i was um so i had to get um prk to correct my vision so i had to wait there was like a time where I had to basically bait, wait a year and show the Air Force that like my eyes are still fine after a year. Like this surgery didn't ruin them. And so in the meantime, my parents were like, well, you're not just going to sit at home. Like you are going to go get a job. And so I, I figured like I might as well get a flying job just in case the military thing doesn't work out. So yeah, I got hired like a, I'd say like a quarter of my class from Purdue all got hired by the same airline. And so I did that just kind of in waiting, um, to go to, to OTS. Yeah. And I guess, uh, life at a regional, what was this like 2011, 2012? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's life right. at a regional wasn't as good as what it is right now. So it was probably a little bit easier for you to walk away from that, you know, with the amount of money you're making, uh, brushing your teeth in the, the terminal and doing all that fun stuff. So you're like, Oh, <laughs> this is actually way better to go in the military. I was like, I loved it. Like the flying was awesome, but it, the pay like shocked me. Like it took, I lived with two other dudes from the same airline based in the same place just to make rent. And like the day I commissioned in the air force, my like bring home paycheck almost doubled on what I was making in the region. Like, it was nuts. And I don't think anyone would really say like first year or even just like being and active duty is like necessarily a highly paying job either, right? Like it's not like you're making a ton of money. It just goes no. to show how bad it was as a regional pilot. And I think yeah. a lot of people forget that, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but new pilots getting hired from Purdue going straight to whatever regional they want to go to. They have all the choices in the world, but 11 years ago, 10 years ago, that was not the case at all. You were uh, barely above minimum wage. Sometimes you're under minimum wage. You had 6,000, 7,000 hours. Some people, um, it was not easy and it was not, no one really recommended being a pilot back then. <laughs> and they're all like, yeah. get out now, please go do something else. 
Yeah, it was, I was surprised at how easy it was to get hired. It was the, like that part wasn't very difficult, like getting in, like your foot in the door wasn't difficult, but yeah, the, the quality of life just from like listening to the people you have on the podcast, like how it is now is drastically improved from how it was then. Yeah. And it, I mean, honestly, it could only get better. Like I can't imagine any way it could get worse. For one yeah. No. <laughs> All right. So you, uh, you're going to OTS, uh, your application's in, you get the corrective surgery. Um, but like you said, you found out they're not really selecting you for a pilot job. What is that? Does that kind of mess up? You're like, oh, is it too late to say no? Can I, uh, JK, I don't want to do this anymore. Or what do you do? So, yeah, I mean, that was not the plan. Um, so I looked into it some more and there's a pretty high likelihood that like, if I got through that training and I went to wherever I was going to go and did well enough, the air force would take me and send me back to pilot training. And so I took that as like, Hey, I'm at least got my foot in the door. I want to do the military thing regardless. And you know, if this whole uh, backseat thing doesn't work out, then I always at least have the option. I could go back to pilot training. Um, and that, that option still existed. So it was, it was definitely a bummer at the beginning. Um, but I knew that option existed, so it didn't really deter me from the military in general. So you're, you're, you accept that job, uh, you know, kind of like that's, like you said, it's in the background, there's always potential you can fall back. Uh, you go there, was your mentality kind of like, dang, this kind of sucks. Like, I mean, I re this isn't really what I want to do. Or were you able to kind of overcome that adversity and go all in and try to be the best that you could in that, that situation or at that job? I would say initially it was pretty negative. Like as we were just doing academics and like some of the kind of the upfront stuff, like it was still in the back of my mind, like this isn't really what I want to be doing, but I would say that went away very quickly the first time I got to go fly. But at that point, it was just the realization of I'm still getting to fly. Like, am I doing the left hand, right hand stuff and moving the airplane? No, but like just getting airborne, mm -hmm. that kind of went away. Yeah. To an extent. You're like, oh, it's kind of nice. I don't have to make all the decisions. There. <laughs> I don't yeah. Have yeah. Some of the stress that comes with this, you know, I can just kind of do my own job and make sure they don't fly us into a thunderstorm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not bad. That's not bad at all, man. Um, so talk about, well, I guess one thing to say is, did you ever find out why? Like, I know the Air Force probably won't tell you, but it's like, here you are. You think you'd be like the prototypical candidate that they'd want, right? Like you have, you already did everything. You're You're making money flying. 50 40 30 people around every single day four legs a day like you fly for a living why well, <laughs> this seems like a waste of funds to to not give you that right away because they probably knew like all right he's eventually going to want to fly the airplane right yeah it, yeah i would say like logically it made zero sense like i could not like who i just didn't understand like, the thing i struggled with is well how did they pick somebody else like what did what else could i have possibly have done to change that um, decision. Like what, I don't understand how we ended up here, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> it was like essentially uh, like a needs of the air force kind of thing. Like I would say a third of my class at OTS all got picked up for the same job that I did. So the air force was just really hurting in that specific career field. So they were, pulling anybody they could that was qualified for that and wanted to do that. And that's what they were picking people up for. Yeah. So what's, uh, what was life like, uh, going through OTS, doing that job, 
uh, and finally getting to kind of serve your country and go on missions and, and deployments. It uh, has been awesome. Um, the like the undergraduate training was um, in Pensacola, Florida, mm-hmm. which is a, not a bad place. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, and that was, again, like a lot of that. I think the civilian side really a lot of that stuff is really easy. Like, I mean, I breezed through a lot of the simple, a lot of the like early flying stuff, all the instruments, like we got to fly the T6 and then the T1, which is a Hawker 400. Um, we got to fly that doing instrument stuff. Like all that was easy. Um, and then got done with that, realized I wanted to go fighters. And what I didn't realize was just the length of how long like getting to the end result is like it's that kind of surprised me and it has been awesome. I mean, I haven't looked back since and the, like in the early on um, still wanted to go back to pilot training and that thought kind of went away pretty quick. Just once I realized like getting to the Jedi fly now and like what our role is as not the pilot and as the Wizzo, like what we bring to the fight, like I love doing it. I hadn't, I haven't, I wouldn't change a thing and I haven't had any second thoughts about going back to be That's in the crazy. front seat instead. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason, right? Like you might initially be like, Oh my gosh, this sucks. Or, or it could be just anything, right? It could be grades. It could be getting into the school you want to go to. It could be the girl or guy you're trying to go after, but it's like everything happens for a reason. And the best thing you can do is just try to give it your all. And maybe you're supposed to be in that situation for a reason. And you are going to excel at that and love that more. You just got to trust the process. And if you don't like it, something bad happens, then you reevaluate and you try to figure out what you can do next. But try, don't be too disappointed. It, I mean, I was always told to give it 24 hours, right? Like sulk for 24 hours. And then you just got to figure it out. Like no one's going to feel sorry for you. It's your life. You got to figure it out and just go for it. Yeah, it's, I'm a big fan of like controlling the things that you can. and. Like if you get put in a position that isn't necessarily ideal or exactly what you want, that's not a reason not to like give it your best effort or try as hard as you can because like nothing good is going to come from, you know, giving it 50%. Like even if you're not happy with it or it's not quite your end goal or your dream state that you want to be in, you still do the best you can. And that all that will do is let other opportunities come up. I mean, you're not going to close any doors by giving it your all. That's for sure. And you never know who you meet in those situations too. Like you're going to meet someone else that has the opportunity to help you on in the path that you want to go to. There might be someone in power that you can impress uh, at that moment in time where they know maybe you're disappointed and they can see how you're going to handle that adversity. Or it could just be a great story you tell in an interview when you're going to interview at Delta American United. And you're like, well, how do you handle adversity? Well, I wanted to be a pilot. The military told me to go screw off and <laughs> I was going to be there for 10, 20 years. So I had to figure it out. So that's what I did. And they're like, oh, wow, that's cool. You can handle adversity. Welcome here. You know, it just is what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So kind of explain what your role is and what you actually do. Because I think most of the people that I, that I actually talk to or that listen are just so familiar with left seat, right seat, you know? Uh, so go ahead and explain a little bit what you actually do. Yeah. So I fly the F-15E, so the Strike Eagle. So we're the only two person cockpit fighter jet uh, the Air Force has. So uh, we sit tandem. So pilot is six feet in front of me. And obviously the pilot is flying the jet um, and does the majority of the like air to air type stuff. I am in charge of basically all of the bombs that we drop. So our jet can do both. So we can do air to air and air to ground. Um, 
So I primarily am like the air to ground person of in the jet and using all the sensors to do all the targeting and dropping of the bombs and guiding yeah. them and all that kind of stuff. What's training like for that? It's a lot of like, uh, I mean, I feel like it's a lot of anticipation, right? You got to understand. So it's kind of like being a sniper, right? Like at least in my mind, it's like you got to understand where you are, how the wind's traveling, the Coriolis effect, like all that kind of stuff. Take it in one, make a decision, hit the button, boom, and hope it works out right. (laughs) Yeah, it's – so I think that was the other – like the rigidity of the Purdue syllabus and like going through that flight training honestly set me up for the military because the training is it felt fairly similar like it is a very rigid syllabus you know what you're gonna do and it's still like a building block process as far as the training goes like they're not gonna like your first flight isn't immediately like shooting missiles and dropping bombs and like hair on fire it's like you learn how to fly the airplane and just be in the airplane and even from the backseat like doing like navigation and you know, backing up the pilot with doing ILSs and simple, you know, easy, basic stuff like that. And then you just build, um, on that. And that takes like that course, we call it the basic course when you like, have never even, some people have never even seen the jet to then leaving there is about 10 or 12 months. And then you go to your operational squadron, you do another, four to six months of what's called mission qualification training. And then you're finally like mission ready. And then you can go deploy or, you know, do anything operational at that point. Yeah. (laughs) I was just thinking about you kind of talking about backing up an ILS. Are you essentially, is it like CRM essentially? So like you'll have a plate up like, Hey, we're a little low. Uh, You're left of course, go around that kind of stuff. Yeah, it is definitely, um, there's definitely CRM involved, which again, like, going back to Purdue and the airline job, like that just helped. Like I'd already, I knew how to do that. Like I knew how to be helpful with that. Um, We like, you basically like I strive to like get all the nav aids set up for it. Like have the approach played out, like backing up the pilot with, you know, altitude step downs and stuff like that. And I personally try to pride myself in, not knowing instruments better than the front seater, but I know I have the wherewithal to know and the experience of like things are going well or not, or like we're trending towards like having to go around and go missed and stuff like that. Like I try to pride myself on leaning on that experience of having, you know, a thousand hours before I even joined the air force of doing instruments. Did you? Yeah. I mean, it's like boring. One of the more basic things, but it's also like, we're the same as any other aviation takeoff and landing is where bad stuff happens. So yeah, it's just trying to back them up with that kind of stuff. Did you find it difficult to talk to them or like correct them when they probably think, you know, military pilots have kind of a little ego behind them, right? Like, did you find it difficult to be in the back? Like, Hey bro, like I have more time than you. Like I've shot way more approaches than you. Like (laughs) did they find to have some respect or more respect because you have actually done what they're doing or did you find it difficult to kind of correct them or to, to talk to them or like tell them to go around because a lot of times people want to think about like fo captain right like the captain automatically thinks he knows more than the fo nine times out of ten uh, a good captain will recognize that both bring a lot to the to the cockpit and can have a safe flight but a lot of times it's not how it is you probably saw that at a regional uh, did you find similar situations like that i did yeah i'd say early on like in that early pensacola training i I didn't tell anybody that I had a thousand hours. I didn't, I didn't like, I did not make that known because I was afraid that like 
well, I didn't want to answer the question of, well, then why aren't you a pilot? Like that was the first question I didn't feel like talking about. And I did also just didn't, I felt that if people knew that, then it, they would like make it more difficult for me and expect more. So I would say then it was, I was a little less inclined to speak up. Um, but You're there, like, oh, this suck, they're not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but they would, they wouldn't like intentionally like do anything unsafe and screw up the approach, but they would make sure you were monitoring that and be like, Hey, like they would like d- hold a deflection until like you spoke up about it to make sure like you understood what was going on. Like you would actually pipe up. So they eventually, they kind of force that out of you, um, there. So you kind of get over like having an issue with speaking up and like kind of like get rid of the like notion of like a halo effect that, Hey, you know, this guy has 2000 hours of military flying. I've been in the military for all of like two minutes. That doesn't mean they always know what's going on and they're, you know, perfect. Like people have bad days. And yeah, if you definitely. see something, you should say something. So what, I guess the better question is, did it ever come up? Like, how did they be like, <laughs> do you remember the day when they finally found out that you're like, you made money flying <laughs> before you got there? I do. It was like day one of instruments and we were doing academics and they pulled up some, an approach plate. And I don't remember where it was or what it was, but they asked a super obscure question about um, like why we would have to ask for like alternate misapproach instructions or something like that. And I'm not even thinking about it, just spouted out the answer. And the, and the guy looked at me, yeah, and the guy, the instructor looked at me and was like, how do you know that? It was like, it was super obscure, like shouldn't have known that answer if I didn't have like my instrument. And so that's when it came out and they're like, oh, okay, sweet. Uh, and then it was kind of out at that point. But I mean, it, it ended up, my like fears about it were not good at all like there wasn't any negative repercussion from that it was it was actually a good thing like i could like advance through that stuff a little bit quicker they would actually like i got to fly a decent amount of it because like i knew what was going on um so it ended up actually being a positive in the end i'd imagine your friends that program were like you asshole like (laughs) you've just been keeping this from us no wonder why you've been doing so well we just thought you're smart but it's like you've just done this before (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking like we were getting academics on like localizers and VOR approaches and blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, get me out of here. Like, can I just take the test right now? Like, I'm good. I've got, like, I understand. <laughs> they thought you're rain man for a second. Like you just do everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. Um, all right. So you're going through your training. Uh, you mentioned the Hawker. Uh, I'm sure that was a fun plane <laughs> to get in. I mean, Hawker's not everyone's dream jet to fly, but it's uh you see them all over the place with, with the military, especially the Air Force. Yeah, the T1. It was cool. It was um, it was a cool um, – it felt like the airline, like doing the CRM. Like we sat in the right seat of it. Um, I did like navigation stuff. I didn't actually fly it. But it again like went back to like the airline thing, sitting in the right seat. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know. Like I'm comfortable here. Like it's a little bit of stress and pressure doing – you know, the extra stuff, but the easy like admin type stuff of like checklists and CRM and stuff like that. You know, I I had plenty of experience with that and I just felt kind of at home and that stuff kind of just came naturally because I had done it before. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. Hey guys, Justin here. Did you know that more than 55% of adults don't protect their income with disability insurance? 
And for pilots like us, with fixed career limits and higher job risk, there's even more riding on missed benefits opportunities than most. But you can take control and full advantage of all valuable benefits your airline offers, starting with free benefit analysis from my partners at RAA. With your free benefits analysis, an advisor specializing in your airline's benefits plan will help tailor an election strategy that best fits your personal needs and goals, including retirement savings, investments, health savings accounts, health care and disability coverage, and more. Listen, your benefits aren't just protecting your health. They're critical to protecting your long-term wealth, too. But open enrollment is approaching fast and only lasts for a limited time, just like this free benefits analysis offer. So don't wait. Schedule your free benefit analysis today at raa.com slash pilot to pilot. That's raa.com slash pilot to pilot. Now back to today's episode. When did training kind of get difficult for you? Because, you know, like you said, you knew a lot. Right? I mean, like the, the flying side of everything was kind of second nature to you. But what, when did it get difficult? And I guess what was the most difficult? I would say it got difficult once I got to the strike Eagle. And now the focus is like, Hey, all that easy admin, like to and from doing instruments, like all that stuff, like that's the baseline. Like you should know how to do all that. That's just kind of the expectation. And now we're going to pile the tactics on top of that and there to air stuff, the bombs, dropping the bombs, all that type of stuff that was now foreign to me, just like everybody else. So it was almost like, like a level playing field at that point. Cause like the airmanship and just like being in the air, like I'd say I had a leg up for that, but all the new stuff is still new regardless of how much civilian time I had. When you were, uh, when you were learning the new stuff, learning dropping missiles, air tactical stuff, did you find that you were so focused on that, that it actually made you struggle in the basic airmanship and other stuff? Or was it still kind of like second, you know, I guess one thing is when you're in your, like when you're doing your private and you finally learn how to talk to a controller and then you go to instrument training uh, and then you're so focused on one thing that it like takes your attention away from everything else. And you're just like scrambling like, ah, 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 ah. Like that, was it kind of like that? Or were, were you still able to kind of recognize everything that you could do, focus on that, make it done and then come back and try to do what you They do a pretty good job of like, mindset shifting so like the going like to and from like the working area or wherever we're going to go practice the tactics and stuff like at that point it's just the instrument stuff and like that is what you're focused on so that's all you care about and then you kind of like shift your mindset and now it's time to practice you know the tactics side of the stuff and then once you're done with that then shift back to okay it's back to the basic airmanship stuff and navigating and all that so it's there wasn't really, it wasn't too difficult because it wasn't really intermixed. It was one or the other. So you could kind of just focus on the thing that was happening. And then when you, I'm guessing they don't put you with someone that's just fresh out of training, uh, flying the airplane. Are you with like seasoned pilots that have flown missions, been in the Air Force for 10, 15 years, and now they're coming back to do training? Or is it just kind of like two new people getting in this airplane? Like, what's up, dude? How long have you been on here? It's like, uh, yesterday, what about you? Uh, same. <laughs> So that is the kind of crazy part about our training in this jet with obviously the two people. My first three flights were with an instructor. So somebody who'd been in the Air Force for a while. And then your fourth flight in the jet is with one of your classmates. So it's the fourth time I had been in the airplane. And it's I think it's the sixth time the pilots had been in the airplane. And yeah, it's just you two in the jet together. <laughs> we're like... As number two, like you have a flight lead who is two instructors, but yeah, you're basically thrown to the wolves essentially as just two brand new people in a $50 million jet, both going 
I don't think we should be here. Like this is nuts. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's really funny. Uh, it's on the outside looking in, you wouldn't think it would be like that. I mean, I guess it's kind of similar with like airline training, right? Like, I mean, sometimes you, at least where I'm at, you got new hire, new hire training when you're getting your initial. So it's like, I don't know what the captain flows. I don't even know the first officer flows. So uh, you just kind of learn together and hope that nothing bad happens along the way and learn from the bad stuff that does. That's what surprised me about the airline train. Like when we hopped in the sim, it was just, yeah, two of us. And one of us is sitting in the left seat and trying to do the sims at the airlines. Neither of us have any idea what's going on. Like, like you said, like, yeah, like, I don't know what I'm doing in the left seat. Like there's flows over here. Sure. But I don't know what's going on. And the person in the right seat's not a whole lot of help. Cause they're like, I really know how to do this job. So I certainly can't help. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of right blind. Screen, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, when you get paired up with uh, the pilot for the first time, is it a, all right, that's who you're flying with forever? Or is it uh, you can switch and you can request a change? Or is it just every new flight with someone else? So in like in that first training course, you're basically paired up with a pilot. So um, you go through together. Uh, once you get out of that and you're done with the MISH qualification training, then you can just basically fly with anybody. So it's just However, the schedule shakes out. You can fly with anybody. Like at my job now, um, there's only like 12 of us, I think, 12 instructors in the squadron that I'm in. So uh, I can fly with any of the other pilots now. It just kind of changes day by day. You like buddy bid? You're like, hey, bro, are you working today? Or <laughs> let's go ahead and fly. Yeah, I was the scheduler um, oh, nice. not too long ago. So yeah, I could make, I could, um, I'd say I got more good deals than bad ones and could kind of, yeah, manipulate who was on the, the schedule. That's funny. Now you're not the scheduler. So hopefully you didn't piss off the person that is the scheduler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you mentioned the hardest part for you is kind of like the tactical side. Um, obviously, it was the most unknown. The first time you really had to learn something new <laughs> since you already knew how to fly an airplane, shoot approaches, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, what was the difficulty of it? Was it just like, I mean, learning something new obviously can be difficult, but was it more like scientific? Was it more, um, I don't know. I don't even know the right question to ask, but just like, what was, what was difficult about it? Like, obviously for me looking at it, it's like, I have no idea. You think you just hit a button, the system's armed, they go do their thing and they go boom. But I'm guessing it's a lot more than that. It was, yeah, it was the, like the studying wasn't difficult or like the understanding of the information wasn't too terribly difficult. It was just the application of it. And the amount of new stuff you are constantly learning, like it seems like in 12 months, like the pace, you know, over that long of a period of time when you're learning new stuff shouldn't be too terribly bad, but it is constantly new stuff. The expectation is you understand and learned stuff up to this point. So the, the expectation is you can do all of that. And now we're going to pile more and more and more on top of that. And more and more things are going on at the same time. And it was, I would say for me, it was the, application of the stuff I was learning in the classroom or the stuff we had done in the sim before the flight. And you just, it being new and being new to the jet and all that just kind of, they intentionally overload you and just pile more new and more and more new stuff on top. What was, um, do you like just go out and full blown, like just start shooting missiles? You got lasers, you got dummies. Like how does it, how does it start out? So the, um, like the jet, you can tell it like, Hey, act like you have these missiles on and then act like I've shot one. Cause you're training against other, um, 
air force jets. So obviously we don't want to shoot each other down for real. So the missile side is like all pretend, but we got to drop actual bombs in that pretty early on in that basic course, which was pretty sweet. Like it was pretty cool to actually um, drop stuff. And yeah, I remember the first time doing that, it was rather nerve wracking because you're like, I really don't want to screw up because like it would be the end of the world, which really isn't the case um, because people screw up all the time and nobody's perfect. But the actually dropping real bombs off the jet was pretty high stress. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be it'd be unfortunate if there was a news article it'd be like Air Force pilot shoots down multiplayer <laughs> bombs Albuquerque by accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Messed up big time. Yeah, that'd be rather unfortunate, Michael. I. Gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did you get signed off? So, well, I guess was there check rides for it, like stage checks, similar to flying. Like, all right, you passed airborne missiles. Now you passed dropping bombs on the ground. Now you passed blah blah blah. Was it just like a bunch of stage checks leading up to one big put it all together check ride? There is. Yeah. There's, um, kind of like you do different phases. So like basic air to air. And then at the end of that, it's kind of like a mini phase check, if you will, I guess it's probably the easiest way to describe it. And then same for like each phase throughout the, that initial training. And at the very end, it's like a culmination of everything put together. And then there is, yeah, that is an actual like formal check ride at the very end, um, for us. So it's, it, kind of similar to civilian like face checks and stuff like that like it was at Purdue but um just one actual like documented formal check ride and then when your say documented formal check rides done uh immediately released kind of I guess better lack of a better word be like to the line uh going out uh were deployed relatively soon or was it more just more training missions training missions training missions um it was then yeah you get your operational base and it's a pretty heavy load of training until you get that mission qualification at that point yeah that's a really good analogy you're basically on the line at that point um for me it was i was like three months out of that and we had an emergency deployment so pretty uncommon to go to one real quick after that um but then came back from that after a couple months and then it was tons more training at home and then we finally did one another six-month deployment um, in my first assignment. Is there a lot of, uh, I don't even know the answer. So is there a lot of like top secret stuff that you guys can do that? Like you can't say or anything like that, or is it more, is there a decent amount of public knowledge? So I would say like, um, you get in and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is gonna be so cool. I'm gonna learn all this secret stuff. And there's gotta be so much cool secret stuff. And you learn about a decent amount of it. And some of it, you're like, wow, that is really cool. And then where I'm at now at the weapons school, we get, um, access to a lot more of the classified type stuff and a lot of it you're like that's pretty cool we can do that like didn't know that that's pretty awesome and then a lot of it you're like oh why is that classified like that is pretty lame like like why is that a secret like that's but some of it's cool some of it is kind of like yeah i guess that's neat and then what was it like uh your first kind of deployment mission or the special deployment that you went out on uh, when, when you know it's not training, like there's no like fake missiles. Uh, if you had to do something, you're actually dropping it or you're shooting it. Uh, was that kind of a more of like a heightened experience for you in the first fight? It was. Yeah. Um, that first one, like the first time I dropped bombs, it was, um, we were in Syria and like that's ISIS was going on because it's been the last 20 years. So that's what's been going on. And they had found like an ISIS, like artillery gun. And I remember we have like a targeting pod that you can see the ground. It looks a lot like, um, 
like a not high def camera is kind of what it looks like in the jet. And I remember seeing like this artillery gun sticking out of, they had hit it in this guy's like apple orchard, but you could see the barrel sticking up and they wanted us to make it go away. And I remember thinking like, Oh wow. Like this is for real. Like we're like, these bombs are going to go boom. And this is like all the training has led up to this and it's like actually happening. And it didn't hit me at the time, but like when we got back and had landed, I was like, Whoa, that was actually pretty intense like doing that for real. Yeah. Uh, don't miss. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What was it? The F 22 that was shooting the balloon. He missed on his first one or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, that was, okay. yeah, we were actually, um, we were like on the hook, like as it was kind of going across the country, cause I'm in Vegas, like as it got close to here, we were getting spun up to like, maybe like they ended up launching some jets out of here to go, maybe shoot it down. Um, but that's when it was like over, like they didn't know where it would fall and overpopulated areas and stuff like that. What random person would get it and keep it? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is my balloon now. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's crazy. I can't imagine your first time, you know, you're coming in. It's like, all right, you good? You sure you're good? And then you just like, gotta make it happen. Were you successful on your first shot? Or did it take you a couple of tries? Uh, the first bomb missed by a little bit. So we got to drop again. And like the first one, just like, I felt kind of bad because it just like, like demolished this guy's apple orchard. Like half of the trees were just non-existent anymore, but the gun was still sitting there. So yeah, we had to drop another one on it and actually make contact with it. And yeah, it went away at that yeah, point. There's, there's definitely no more apple orchard after the second one. No, no. Oh, <laughs> uh, that stinks. But you know, that's what happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you're progressing as you're going, you know, you've been doing this for quite some time. Um, when did you get like very comfortable what you're doing? Uh, it's kind of like when you go to an airline, right? Like there's like a, a three month period where you're kind of like, you're still just kind of like, what is that? Like trying to catch up, like you're a little bit behind everything. Did it take some time when you're actively out there on missions to like feel comfortable enough to, to be on Johnny in the spot, you know, like right when they call right away? It did. Yeah. I would say the, that first deployment just being so inexperienced and new definitely never got comfortable. Um, by the time we went for the six month one, that was in 2017. So I'd been in the jet for, uh, about two years at that point. And I would say that a couple, a month or two into that is where it kind of started getting comfortable and we were the experience and we were doing a lot of the same type of things every day. I mean, there was still, um, stress and like excitement and stuff like that. But I would say that's where it finally got comfortable was, you know, having a couple hundred hours doing it at that point, but it definitely took a while to get comfortable yeah. with it. Oh, I'd imagine. Yeah. And especially when, when you mess up, it's like, I mean, lives, well, your life particularly is not at risk when you mess up. Well, I mean, I guess if, if you really messed up, it probably could be, but <laughs> it's a lot of money to drop a, a missile or drop a bomb. Like that's not just like, it's a lot of taxpayer money <laughs> right there when you're dropping one. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I would say it never like, I wouldn't say I ever got kind of like complacent, but yeah. it just got more comfortable doing the thing and the stress level, you know, got lower and lower mm -hmm. um, as we kind of went through that, that six month deployment. Talk about a uh, kind of a day in your life in the deployment, or maybe you're getting ready for a mission. Like what's, what's the pre-brief, what's the flying, what's the post-brief? Like you don't have to go too into specifics about like certain missions, but it's like typically what would it look like? So I would like the deployment and what I do now are definitely different on deployment. Um, 
we would brief um, like two hours before the flight. Um, we would step to the jets an hour before takeoff, do all the pre-flight type stuff, take off, go fly. The like average deployment sortie for us was four to five hours of flying. Some were boring. Some you were dropping every bomb you had on on the jet, and then you were coming home. Um, and then the debrief there was usually pretty quick. We would talk to Intel about like what we saw, what we did, stuff like that. Um, and then that would be it for me. I was on like the night crew. So my dinner was breakfast that next morning. So the body clock was a little off. Um, but here, like a training mission is a lot longer of a day. Um, we're showing up to the squadron three or four hours before the flight briefing two and a half hours before takeoff flying anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half. And then the debriefs where I'm at now at the weapons school can be anywhere from, three to 10, 11 hours long. Dang. Yeah. 11 hours. You're just like, can we talk about this tomorrow? Like, I, I just flew this. Like I need to go. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so technology obviously is playing a big part in all of aviation where people are talking about 121 eventually going single pilot. Um, a lot of fighter jets now are like, it's just one person, right? There's a lot of technology in there is what you do kind of like a dying breed? Like, I'm not saying that, like, trying to, like, make you mad or disrespectful, but, like, is, is it on its way out? Is this something that you see in the next 10, 15 years not being a job anymore as the F-15s kind of get retired out? Or uh, what do you see for this? Yeah, I think um, I think we're at risk is probably the easy way to describe it. Um, like, a lot of the newer jets, like, so much stuff is automated that, you know, like the, like, we joke about the guys that fly the F-35. They don't really even fly the airplane. They just like, it's got autopilot, auto throttles, and they just are working the different sensors and stuff. So I, I'd say we're trending in that direction. Um, but at least as far as right now, like the plan that like the strike eagle is not going away for any time soon. Um, and we're the two person cockpit is, like there is a benefit to having two people in there. I mean, it's like for the front seater, like left hand, right hand flying the airplane takes a lot of brain power. And with having somebody else in the jet who can worry about literally everything else is a huge advantage. So I mean, the strike heel is not going anywhere, at least as a platform anytime soon. So like my job should be good, but the like technology and stuff, they can just, knowing there's two people, you can pile more and more stuff into the jet and more and more of that stuff. Cause you have two sure. people that can deal yeah, with it. Definitely. And then do you hope to be in this position until you get out of the military? Is this like a long-term plan or do you have a, another kind of option that you want to go to or um, uh, do something else? I'm going to do this job until they tell me I can't anymore. I <laughs> really don't want to do um, yeah. anything else. My plan afterwards, whenever that happens is to walk to some sort of defense contracting company and say, I'll take a job. I'm like, I'm not going to interview for it. I'm not going to make a resume. <laughs> I'm just, I'll take a job. Yeah. Listen to the pilot, pilot podcast. That's my resume. Here we go. Time <laughs> yeah. <to> go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, don't, I love it. I don't, I have, no major complaints. So no, I don't, I don't really plan on or want to do anything else. What, um, if you can talk about it, what, is there any like one emergency situation that you've had that's been like, Holy smokes, I was close. I have not had one in this jet. No. Um, no wood. 
Yeah, nothing that was nothing scary. No, um, I had one in the Dash Eight when I was doing the airline thing. That it wasn't scary, but it was like the one EP I had in my ten yeah. months there. That was not the greatest because of the captain I was flying with. But <laughs> yeah, uh, that happens a lot of times. Sometimes there's self-induced emergencies by captains <laughs> or first officers. But uh, you only had one in a Dash Eight. I feel like you—that's uh, nothing compared to some of the people that fly those bad boys. Yeah, I had one that had a prop that was trying to like it wanted to like come loose essentially as wasn't so that wasn't great, but less than ideal. Yeah, that was the only <laughs> that was really the only one that I had with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, for someone that is kind of thinking the same thing, uh, you know, they want to be a military pilot. Maybe they just got the tough news that they can't do it. Um, you mentioned that it was a blessing in disguise for you. Love what you're doing, but accepting that is different than like hearing someone else talk about it. Like everyone kind of goes through that in their own way. What would you recommend to someone that's maybe in the military, got some bad news? Uh, maybe they got a Delta and they got the plane they didn't want. They got a 717 when they wanted to be an FO and an A350. Like what, what would you say to someone in those situations? I would just say like, regardless of the situation, like if it's not what you wanted, just do your best at, you know, wherever, um, you're put. I mean, that all I can do or all that will do is like leave doors open, um, and just be open to like, this isn't necessarily exactly what I want to do right now, but that doesn't mean I can't keep working towards that or give up on, you know, striving towards that goal, whatever that may be, even if you're not in a super favorable yeah. position. And last question for you. Uh, do you ever see yourself flying again? Or maybe when this is all over, you're like, you know, airline pilots kind of make a lot of money. I still have those ratings. Let me uh, let me just go brush up on a couple. Get that 172 out and go fly and uh, go fly for Southwest, Delta, United, America. Yeah, I go I go back and forth. The Like the big thing that leads me towards not doing that is I got, um, when I got hired, I don't have an ATP. I didn't have to have one. So like the thing that I just don't feel like dealing with is going back and like doing all the stuff that I would have to just to even apply to an airline. Just at this point, it doesn't seem super, um, yeah, like no thanks, <laughs> but, um, I don't ever want to not be flying. Like I haven't flown a little plane now in, I don't know, 12 years. And I definitely miss that. Like I, I know when I do get out of the military, I at least want to be around aviation. That's for sure. Definitely. Uh, I mean, yeah, when, when you're, when you're in aviation, uh, it's hard to fully walk away from it. Right. I mean, it's, it happens. Uh, money happens. It's, it's hard to get back in. Like I always say when, when you're flying little planes, when you're at a 172 at Purdue and you're, all you're thinking about is flying that Airbus or that 737, uh, don't overlook that time in a 172, an Arrow, a Cirrus, because more times than not, you're never going to fly one. You're never going to go to the airport and drop 200, like not never, but I'd say 80% of people don't go drop a couple hundred dollars every Saturday to go fly. So enjoy it because you might not do it again. Yeah. And I, yeah, that, like that rings home. Cause like, I'm, I didn't realize it at the time, but I miss it a lot now. And at the time, like, wasn't thinking about it, just thinking about like you said, like the next step and the next step and you don't realize how good it is where you are at that time. Absolutely. Well, Jay Paul, that's all I got for you, man. Those are all the questions. Uh, congratulations. You passed. <laughs> uh, like I said, thanks again for coming on. Uh, it's really cool to hear your story. It was, it was cool to hear 
just the idea of like having such a goal, uh, facing a setback, realizing that this is probably the better path for you and something that you want to do uh, and just going all in on it and loving it. So it's, uh, it's really cool to see how you handle diversity and you make it happen. And now that's your favorite thing and you wish you didn't want to be a military pilot <laughs> or be up front, you know? So it's, uh, it's really cool, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks. And yeah, thanks for uh, this podcast is awesome. Um, like when I was figuring out like how to go about doing what I wanted to do and stuff, there wasn't anything like this. And it's unbelievable now the amount of like information that's available. And like, I, I would have killed to have heard somebody talk about a similar story or talk about a similar experience or how they did this or that. And that's why this, that's why I love like this podcast and like, getting that information out there because it, it exists and people have done, you know, like regardless of what you want to do, somebody's probably already done that. And it's just being able to connect through somebody or through something like this with somebody and like ask questions or figure out how do I go about, you know, doing X, Y, or Z. And I would have killed to have had that when I was trying to figure out my life. I a hundred percent agree. <laughs> and in 2008, 2010, you know, there were, there was probably one or two podcasts, but they're just starting. Uh, YouTube was kind of up and coming. I remember watching YouTube hold video, trying to figure out how to do a hold. <laughs> but like now it's like, there's like a, a thousands of CFIs on there and you don't like this one. You just go to the next one, you go to the next one, you go to the next one. But thanks for the good word, the kind words, man. I really appreciate it. Cause I, I do agree. Like when you think you're going through something and you think you're the only one uh, having that resource that can show you that you're not the only one that struggled with holds or you're not the only one that struggled with talking to ATC hearing that they overcame it and then, or hearing that they failed a check ride, just like you do in the end of the world, never happened. They're still living their dream and flying airplanes. Like it, it can happen. You just need to hear that it's okay. And someone else has done it and been successful. And I always like to say like you, anyone can be a pilot. There's a lot of dumb people flying airplanes right now that you'd be super surprised that they're flying. Yeah. Airplanes. Like literally we can make people, we can get people to fly airplanes. Like just go do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, but uh, but man, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, like I said, thank you for being flexible because it has not been easy on my end to get you on or it hasn't been easy on your end to get me on, I should say. So thanks, man. I appreciate it. I look forward to releasing this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. All right, man. Have a good one. We'll talk to you later. Cool. See ya. All right. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I've told you this before, but holidays are coming up. You know, your brother, your sister, your dad, they might be in town. You might be visiting. Grab their phone, you know, search Pilot the Pilot, see if they subscribe. If they don't, get them to subscribe. You know, maybe it'll be a pilot. Hey, Nation, that's all I got for you today. So as always, happy fun. Pilot the Pilot LLC is compensated to make recommendations to his or her followers regarding the services of RAA or Allworth Airline Advisors, companies of Allworth Financial, LP, or Allworth. Promoter is not an employee or investment advisor representative of Allworth. Promoter is a current client of Allworth. Allworth-based promoter fee of $4,000 a month for sponsorship of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Due to the compensation arrangement between Allworth and Promoter, Promoter has an incentive to recommend Allworth resulting in material conflict of interest. Promoter's role on behalf of Allworth is limited strictly to making recommendations regarding the services of Allworth, introducing or referring prospective clients to Allworth. Promoter has no responsibility with respect to Allworth's investment advisor or other advisory services.